All right, the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, if you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want to start this morning by asking you to look up on the screen. Now, I know you're not going to recognize who that is right there, but that is a man by the name of MacArthur. His name is MacArthur Wheeler. He just spent, he was actually just uh, released from a, a state prison up in the state of Pennsylvania after serving 24 years for bank robbery. Now, let me tell you his story. It's an amazing story. On a single day back in 1995, he robbed two different banks in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In each case, as he robbed these banks, he didn't wear a mask. He didn't wear any type of a disguise. And on his way out the bank, he actually stopped and smiled for the surveillance cameras on his way out the bank. Later that night, they had no idea who it was, but later that night, the police got the video footage from the banks, played it on a local TV station, and within minutes, he was identified, and at 12.15 the next morning, police showed up at his door and arrested him. Well, when they arrested that man right there that you're looking at, took him into custody, his words were these, but I wore the juice, but I wore the juice. You see, Wheeler had previously read that lemon juice was a key ingredient used to make invisible ink. So he thought to himself, I'm going to buy me several lemons. I'm going to rub them generously all over my face, saturating his face. And then he headed off after doing that to rob those banks. In fact, as he stood before both the tellers, he handed them a note demanding their money. And then he added these words on his note, don't worry. I have a face. He was fully convinced that the lemon juice had caused his face to be invisible. And that's the reason that he stopped and smiled for the surveillance cameras as he exited the building. Well, after he was taken into custody, Wheeler also told the police that earlier that day he had taken one of those Polaroid instant cameras. You remember the big ones? And, and he'd taken a picture of his face, and he said, it appeared that my face was, to, was invisible. However, the police determined that either the film had gone bad or else he had got lemon juice in his eyes. And he was arrested and served a 24-year sentence for robbing both those banks. Now, I know, I get it, I know what you're thinking, because I thought the same thing. Either he's lost his mind, or he's on some bad drugs, one. I thought the same thing. Yet, when he was examined by various doctors, and even by psychologists, he was found to have no alcohol, or no drugs in his blood whatsoever, and furthermore, he was declare, declared completely competent to stand trial. The article read, and this was the final statement, that he was a man who was incredibly deceived. Now, we read stories like that, and we think to ourselves, how crazy can, can, can some person be? And yet, I want to ask you to stop and think about this morning, because there are people that are sitting right here in this building this morning who are just as deceived as that man up on the screens was. But whereas his deception cost him 24 years of his life, a person that is deceived about their salvation can cost them throughout all of eternity. Now, I've got to stop right up front, and I want to say this, that it is God's will for everybody in this building to know for sure that you're saved. That's God's plan for everybody in here. And by the way, you can know. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait till you stand before God. You don't even have to wait until the so-called great judgment day. You can know, and you should know today that you are saved. And by the way, can I tell you something? It's not complicated. 
God has made the plan of salvation so clear and so easy that even an eight-year-old child can understand it. In fact, let me illustrate this morning how easy it is to be saved from a story that Jesus told one time about a meal. That's right, a meal. I'm talking about a big supper. And in just a moment, uh, many of us will leave the building. I know today my whole family's meeting over at my daughter's house, and we're going to have a big meal over there in just a little while. And many of us will go home to a big meal that has been prepared for us right after church is over. Well, Jesus said being saved, getting saved, is just like sitting down to a big old meal. It's a feast, by the way. It's a feast, not a funeral. Can I have an amen? Getting saved is not a funeral. It's a feast. I know you can't tell it looking on a lot of our faces this morning. But the truth of the matter is, friend, becoming a child of God is like sitting down to one big festive atmosphere with a big old meal and not a funeral with a frown on your face. Now I want you to stop this morning. Think about some of the big meals that you have ate before. Think about those big Thanksgiving meals that you and your family have sat down to. For By the way, look at me, 88 days today till Thanksgiving. Got your turkey yet? Hey, think about those big meals at Christmas time. By the way, 119 days till Christmas. Got your tree up? Got your shopping done? Think about those big meals, maybe birthday meals, when you, you and the family all gather around and jokes are being told and people are laughing and there's a very joyous and festive kind of an atmosphere and you sit down and you stuff and you stuff and you stuff till you can't eat anymore. Think about that. And Jesus said, okay, that's just like getting saved. And what I want to do this morning, if you'll bear with me, I want to stop and I want to read to you what the Bible says about being saved and sitting down to a meal. Now join me in Luke chapter 14, and look at verse number 16, and here's the story. Stay with me for just a moment. Here's the story. Verse 16, Then said he unto him, Jesus said unto a man, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. He invited a lot of people. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I brought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, <laughs> another said, I've married a wife. It's okay to laugh right there. I've married a wife. And therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. 
So Jesus here in the, in the space of these seven or eight verses said, okay, getting saved is just like sitting down to a big old meal. And he tells the story about this great man and he's made this large supper. No expense has been spared. I mean the table is adorned with all kinds of foods. There are platters and juices and fruits and bowls and meats and garnishings and the entree is sitting right there in the middle of the table. Oh yeah, the table has been well prepared and then the man, the master, the host says, all right, to one of his servants, go out now and everybody that has received an invitation, go tell them to come on now. The meal is now ready. How many of y'all are with me? It's sitting, getting saved is like sitting down to a meal. Now this story easily breaks itself down into three sections. There are those who relate the invitation. There are those who receive the invitation. But then number three, there are those who reject the invitation. Let me explain all that for just a moment. Those who relate the invitation. Those are the servants of the master. And he sent that servant out and said, all right now, evidently everybody's received an invitation previously to this great big meal. So he says to the servant now, everybody that's got an invitation, go out there, knock on their door and tell them, okay, come on, everything is now ready. That's those who relate the invitation. And by the way, can I stop and tell you this morning, that's my purpose in this building this morning. That's my purpose for being here in this service today. It's my job to tell you, hey, a host has prepared a supper and he's invited you to come. You don't have to bring any money. It's absolutely free. The table's been spread. No expense has been spared. The most costly gift that could have ever been given has been given so that this meal might be prepared. And all you've got to do is just to come. It's my job to invite you to come to the supper. Now you say, you're a preacher. No, this morning I am an inviter. And my purpose in this service today is to tell anybody in this room, you can come, it's free, you can come, you can gorge yourself, there's enough here to fill you up through all eternity, and all you got to do is just come. There are those who relate the gospel. There are those who relate the invitation. I am an inviter. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus, my purpose in this service is to invite you to come to supper. Can I have an amen? But then there are those who receive the invitation. Evidently, I mean, we read on down here that uh, some people wouldn't come, but then we read that others would come, and, and uh, those who received the invitation, some have, rec- uh, have responded, and they have come and sat down at the meal. Let me just stop and tell you, the only way I know how good this meal is because I have partaken of it my own self. I know it's, I know, hey, look at me, it's on point. Can I say that? It's on point. Hey, can I say this? It'll stick to your ribs. And we even got a saying that we use around our house. Sometimes it goes like this. It'll change your life. Sometimes we'll sit down to a meal and one of the kids will say, try that right there. It'll change your life. Well, can I tell you something? This meal that has been prepared by the host this morning, look at me, it'll change your life. It's on point. It'll stick to your ribs. It'll fill you up. It'll satisfy you, but greatest of all, it'll change your life. Can I have an amen? And I tell you, all over this building this morning, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who sit right here in these chairs this morning that can say a great big, big old amen to that. You know why? They have partaken of the supper. They have ate of the meal, and it has changed their life. If you can say that, say amen this morning. Now, our purpose this morning is to help you. 
My job in this service this morning, in fact, my burden this morning, is not those who relate the invitation. It's not even those who have received the invitation, but my burden this morning, those who have rejected the invitation. I want you to look in our text this morning because there in verse number 17, this servant goes out at supper time and says, okay, hey, y'all, come on. The meal is prepared. Everything is now ready. I mean, it's here. It's open. It's free. Hey, the host is taking care of the cost. All you got to do is just come. And then the very next verse, verse 18, we read these words, and they all with one consent begin to make excuse. Every one of them began to make an excuse as to why they could not come. I wonder this morning, what kind of an excuse are you making for not coming to the supper of salvation? What kind of excuse are you using this morning that keeps you from partaking of a life-changing meal? What kind of an excuse are you using this morning to prevent you from coming and experiencing the Lord Jesus for your very self? What kind of an excuse are you making this morning? Well, I got to thinking about that. And I, what, what bothers me about this text is those who rejected the invitation. Of course, look at how flimsy these excuses are. One said, it's Macau's. Look at verse 18. One of them said there in verse 18, I, 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 well, I'm sorry, verse number 19, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to put, now can I ask you a question? Who in the world is going to go buy a cow and not see it to start with? I don't know about you, but it, it could be eat up with the mange. It could be a, a, a starvation. It could, be, it could be on its last leg. It could be about to die. Who's going to buy cows without going and looking at them? One said, my cows. The other one said, it's my country. Look at verse number 18. Uh, the first said, I bought a piece of ground. I must go see it. Stop. Who's going to buy property without seeing it? I mean, for all you know, it could be swampland. I mean, you're not going to buy a piece of uh, property and not know where it's at or not see it. You're not going to buy some livestock and not see it. And, and then the other one said, uh, it's my companion. One said, my country. One said, my cows. The other said, I have married a wife, and I, therefore I cannot come. Let me just stop and ask you a question. What woman don't want to get dressed up and be took out to a meal once in a while? Can I have an amen? All I'm trying to say is none of these excuses will hold water. None of these excuses are really legitimate excuses for missing the meal. My question again is, what kind of an excuse are you using? So I got to thinking about that. If you'll stay with me, it's 1043 and I'm wrapping. I'm coming in for a landing. But what kind of an excuse are you using for not coming to the supper of salvation? I thought about three or four things. Here's one excuse some people use. I'm afraid to come. I am afraid to come. So this morning, I'm standing up and I'm inviting you to this life-changing meal. I'm inviting you to this meal that's going to satisfy you forever and ever and ever. And some people this morning, when I give the invitation and I invite you to come, some people are going to respond by saying, but I'm afraid to come. Now, let me tell you something. Fear is a very real thing, and I get that. I have certain fears that I have to deal with. And fear is a very real thing, and I get all that. But let me just see if I can for just a moment set your mind at ease a little bit about any fear that you may have by, about coming to the supper of salvation. Let me say, number one, some people say I'm afraid to because of the fear of rejection. Now, nobody in here likes to be rejected. Uh, how many times, maybe when you were growing up and you saw this pretty young lady and you wanted to ask her out on a date, but you would not dare ask her because you were afraid that she was going to say no. 
And the fear of rejection kept you from asking her out. Maybe a young lady in here. Maybe, uh, maybe you thought to yourself one time, I, uh, maybe I'd like, to, I'd like to go out with that young man or something of that nature. But the fear of being rejected uh, kept you from doing it. The fear of being rejected is a legitimate fear. It is very real. And how many people, uh, you know, maybe would come to the supper if they just knew that God wouldn't reject them if they did come? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and maybe you've got the mindset of this. Well, I would come, but I tell you, after the way I lived, I know God don't want anything to do with me. I mean, preacher, you don't understand who you're talking to. I've been involved in this and, and I've done that and, and I've totally ignored God and I, I've got a prison record or I've, I've been hooked on drugs or I've been hooked on alcohol or I've been married five or six or seven or eight or 15 times. And uh, I tell you, preacher, I, I've, got, I've got all these problems in my life. I just know if I come down there and wanted to sit at the table and, and eat the meal, I know God don't want anything to do with me. He's angry at me. Can I tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth this morning? Can I tell you that God is not mad at you? God is mad about you. You say, what's the dif difference? Well, being mad at something is one thing, but being mad about something is something else. Can I say this? God's not mad at you. Maybe you have done this. Maybe you do have a prison record. Maybe you have been hooked on this or that. And maybe you are hooked on this or that. Maybe your life has been less than perfect. Maybe you have been married five or ten or fifteen times. Maybe you have jumped out of one bed into another bed. Maybe that's the story of your life. But I'm here to tell you, there's a God in heaven that's madly in love with you this morning and wants you to be a part of his family. He'll not reject you. He'll not turn you away. In fact, he'll receive you just like you are. Let me set your mind at ease by reading you a verse. Look up on the screens. Here is a promise from the lips of our Savior, and it goes like this. Him or her, generic, that cometh to me. Now read the last phrase. I will in no wise cast out. Hey, you may be rejected from one job because you got a prison record. You may be rejected by one person because you don't meet up to their standards. You may rejected from, be rejected from society because of what you've done in your past life. But I got good news for you, friend. There's a God in heaven that loves you just like you are and will take you just like you are and he'll not reject you. He'll not turn you away. In fact, his words to you are, just come on up here and dine this morning. Come. The fear of rejection, that's a real, a, a real fear. But then not, not only the fear of rejection, but I thought about this, the fear of ridicule. You see, one of the things that really bothers us a lot is what others think about us. And I don't know why it does, but I guess in my own life, I have dealt with that fear. What's somebody going to think about me? If I do this or if I do that, what are they going to think about me? That's a very real fear to a lot of people, what others might think or what others might say or how others may act toward me. In fact, let me tell you something. In our Bible, we have an illustration of a bunch of people who were so afraid that they would not confess Jesus. Let me read it to you. John chapter 12, and it goes like this. Nevertheless, among the chief, pre, uh, chief rulers... Also, many, of, many believed on here. So here's a lot of people. They're, they're in a political position. And the Bible said they believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of a synagogue. 
In fact, the next verse goes on to say this, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. You know what kept those people from confessing Christ? They were afraid of what other people were going to think about them. They were afraid that they were going to be put out of the synagogue, so therefore, I guess we could say they were undercover Christians. They were undercover believers. They were incognito. They would not come out and voice their, uh, their stand for Jesus simply because they were worried about what other people were going to think about them. I wonder who sits here this morning, and you know you're lost. You know. You know down deep in your heart. You need Jesus in your life, and yet the one thing that keeps you from coming Sunday after Sunday, service after service, is the fact that you know it, but you don't want anybody else to know it because everybody else around you thinks that you're already saved, so therefore you don't want to, uh, you don't want to get their scorn or maybe them to laugh at you because you walk down an aisle and trust Jesus, so you're going to sit right there on that church pew and slide right off into hell because you're worried, you're afraid of what somebody else is going to think or say about you. I wonder how many members of Woodland Baptist Church are in that predicament this morning. And just because everybody else thinks you're a good person, you've been a good boy, you've been a good girl, and yet down deep in your heart you know there's something sadly missing from your life. And the one thing that keeps you from taking care of this all-important matter is you're worried about what somebody else is going to think about you. Can I have an amen? That's how true and how real that is. I want to tell you something. I've been at Woodland now. If I can make it to December and not die, I would have been here for 26 years. And let me tell you, I walked in the doors of this church on January the 1st, I'm sorry, January the 2nd of 1997. So you do the math. This coming January will start my 27th year at this church. Let me tell you something that I've never seen in 26 years of being in this church. I have never in 26 years saw anybody walk down an aisle to, to our church, come down one of these aisles and stand here at the front, open their heart and receive Jesus, turn around and say, hey, this person this morning, George or Henry or Susie or Judy, just received Jesus. I've never seen anybody in this building laugh or make fun of somebody who got saved. In fact, I'll tell you, I've saw just the opposite. I've seen them have joy. I've seen them shout. I've seen them wave their hand. I've seen them clap their hands. You know what? We're not going to laugh at people. We're not going to make fun of people because the truth of the matter is, listen to it, we used to sit where you sit, but thank God we finally swallowed our pride and came to the point. We don't care what people think about us. we got to get right with God. And brother, that was the best day of my life when I did that. Some are going to say, I would come but I'm afraid to. Here's what others are going to say. Some are going to say, I'm afraid to, and then others are going to say, I don't need to. I don't need to. Why do you suppose it is that people say, when it comes to the Supper of Salvation, I don't need to? Well, just imagine I came up to you this morning and handed you an invitation to a supper that was going to change your life, and you looked down and you read it and you said, no, thank you. I don't need to. Why is it that people think that they don't need to be saved? Now, we're told in the Bible that everybody needs to be saved. I mean, listen to this verse, Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. Jesus looked at a very religious man, a man that was gun barrel straight. The only problem was he's just as empty. And he told that very religious man, you must be born again. 
I may be speaking to people that are members of churches, maybe you've been a member of church all of your life, you've been confirmed, you've been baptized, salvanized, galled and, and welded, and you've done all of that, you've been through all the religious stuff, but down deep in your heart, the one thing you're missing is a relationship with Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you, friend, everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. I'm telling you, from the best of us to the worst of us, everybody needs Jesus. i got to tell you, why is it that you suppose that people, that, that people don't think they need to be saved? I'll tell you what the majority of it is. Many people don't get saved because they've had some kind of a religious experience in their life early on. Maybe you went to a Bible school in somebody's backyard. Or maybe, and I'm not discrediting that, people can get saved at backyard Bible schools. I believe that. I'm not saying that when you maybe you were a child, maybe you walked down the aisle because several of your buddies went down the aisle uh, as well. I believe people can get saved with their buddies. But maybe, maybe all of that has left you empty on the inside. Maybe you say, Preacher, you don't understand. I've already joined the church. I'm not talking about joining the church. I'm talking about getting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm talking about sitting down at a life-changing meal. I'm talking about take, partaking of a meal that's going to fill you up forever and ever and ever. Listen, there are only two types of people in this building today who need to be saved. Number one, those who think they need to be saved and those who don't think they need to be saved. And if you fall into any other category other than them two, then you're all right. But everybody in this building needs to be saved. You need it. In fact, you can't get into heaven without it. There's no other way. You're not going to go to heaven. I can just see it on the judgment day. People walk up and they start pulling out church membership forms and tithing receipts and baptismal certificates. And as a child, I was dedicated. Here's, here's proof. As a child, I was given to the Lord. Here it is. And God was going to reject every bit of that because you're trying to pay him with money that he will not receive. The only word, the only name, the only hope that you have of going to heaven is when you get there and say, I'm coming on the merits of Jesus Christ, on his shed blood. You need to. Some are going to say, I'm afraid to. Others are going to say, I don't need to. And then here's what others are going to say, I intend to. Oh, yeah, preacher, I get it. Preach, you ain't telling me nothing I don't know. I know I need to be saved, and I'll tell you what, one of these days I'm going to get around to it. One of these days, preacher, I promise you, I'm going to do that. I, I, I've, been, you know, I've been acquainted with that fact all of my life, and one of these days I get around to it, preacher, I promise. Now, don't worry about me. I'll be okay. I'm going to do that. I intend to one of these days. You know, the one thing, the one word that keeps occurring in our Bible when it comes to God, is the word now. When it comes to being saved, is the word now. Look at this verse right here, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Behold, now. Say it with me. Behold, now. It's the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Look at this verse, Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together. And then notice in our text this morning, Luke 14, and look, if you will, at verse number 17. He sent his servant at supper time to say to them that, them that were bidden, Come, for all things are... There it is again. You see, you can't go back and change yesterday, and we don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. All we got is now. All of my life, well, it, with the exception of the first seven years of my life, we lived in a cul-de-sac 
just right outside of Mount Airy, north side of town, north Franklin Road, and right behind our house where we lived in this cul-de-sac was a cow pasture. Miss Freeman, Georgia Freeman, and Kim and Brad and their children still live on the top side of the cow pasture, and we lived on the, the lower side of the cow pasture. And when it snowed, we'd ride a car hood down that big old hill over there. And if it's really icy, you can go all the way into the briar patch. I'm telling you, it ain't a lot of fun to ride a sled into a briar patch. <clears throat> but all of, most of my life, if you're facing my mom and dad's house to the left, was a house, and I don't know what it was, but for most of my life, people from the north had moved down here and lived in the house. I remember when I was just a child, a man by the name, and this was his name, Mr. Shunk lived in that house. And he lived there several years, and eventually he moved off. And then after he moved out, there was another man that moved in there by the name of Mr. Hill, Harold Hill. Now, Mr. Hill was an unusual man. He was from the north, but he had something that nobody else in the neighborhood had, cable TV. Can I have an amen? None of us had cable TV. And he had cable TV, but mom and daddy wouldn't let me be around him because he drank real bad. But what mom and daddy didn't know was I would sneak down there into his basement with him. And he ate Pringles potato chips and drunk beer and watched the Braves games. Now, how many of y'all remember the old TBS, you know, all that? And they put, always had the Braves game. Dale Murphy and Biff, no need for a nickname. Pokoroba was the catcher. And, and the Mad Hungarian was the, the closer. Haboski uh, or whatever. Man, as a kid, I loved it. Go down there. I never drank. I, I ate Pringles once in a while, but I never drank. But, and I'd sit there with Mr. Hill. When I got 16 years old, I got saved. And when I became 18... God called me to preach. One of the first people that I ever wanted to see saved was Mr. Harold Hill. Now, he thought being saved, being religious, being a preacher was the biggest waste of time that there was. In fact, he looked at me and said, why are you wasting your life? Go to college. Make something out of yourself. And uh, that was his mentality about it. And I talked to him about the Lord, and he didn't want anything to do with it. But I tell you what I did do. I, when I started preaching around Mount Airy some, I would invite him to come hear me preach. And there were several times he would sit back there in the church where I was preaching, and he'd raise his hand that he was lost. I just knew Mr. Hill was going. I loved that man with all my heart. I mowed his yard even after I became an adult. I'd mow his yard for him. I mean, we kind of hit it off, even though Mom and Daddy didn't really want us to. Uh, we kind of hit it off, and, and I really wanted to see him get saved. And one of the last times I ever saw him, I talked to him again about salvation. And I said, Mr. Hill, please, please, I, I want you to go to heaven with me. I, I would love to see you get saved. And here's what he said to me. I excuse you hear it today. He said, you know something? I'm going to do it. I just need to think about it a little bit more. Well, I moved off to pastor down the middle part of the state. And about six months after we had been there, the phone rang in the parsonage one morning and answered the phone. And these words were said into the phone. Mr. Hill had a massive heart attack this morning and died in his shower. Now, I don't know if he ever got saved, but the last words I remember him saying, I'm going to but I just need to think about it. What makes you so sure you've got time to think about it? One car comes across that yellow line. Hey, 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 one little blood clot the size of a pinhead rushes through a major artery. 
a heart attack. Hey, what about a drug deal gone bad? Man, that's a legitimate thing right now in our world. What if you're over at the mall shopping and the shooting breaks out and there you are? What makes you so sure you've got time to think about it? So I close with this one. I'm afraid to. I don't need to. I intend to. But here's what I hope you'll say this morning. I have decided to. That's the greatest thing you could ever do in your life. Now I'm done, but look at me. Look at me. So here's the table. There are platters of peace, juices of joy, bowls of blessings, meats of mercies. There are garnishings of grace, and right in the middle is the entree of eternal life. And God says to you this morning, I've taken care of the cost. It's absolutely free. All I want you to do is just come. And if you'll do that this morning, this meal will change your life. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer.